Before we officially begin this podcast, we believe that it is vital to include a trigger warning as we will be discussing some potentially triggering content. If you are in any way triggered by sexual abuse, assault, and human trafficking, we advise you not to listen to this episode. We also provide some resources to get help. Stay safe and stay healthy. Hello, my name is Riva Al-Ahmadi. I'm a rising senior and a public relations director at Amphoteens. And I'm Jenny. I'm a high school student from Sydney, Australia, and I'm a regional director at Amphoteens. We are both proud members of Amphoteens leadership team that work towards accomplishing the Amphoteens mission of working with well-known organizations to provide teams with the opportunity to contribute to global issues through community-changing projects that are accessible through virtual means. So one of the organizations that Amphoteens has been collaborating with is Love 146. And Love 146 is an international nonprofit organization working towards the end of child trafficking. And they do this through tons of initiatives like survivor care programs, prevention education, professional training, grassroots empowerment, and research. Um, as a team of volunteers, we've recently undergone Love 146's volunteer training curriculum. And that experience has really been the catalyst for us to initiate our own projects. So we realized that there are actually a lot of misconceptions and unanswered questions surrounding human trafficking, which we decided could be best answered in a podcast series. Begin by answering these questions, we just want to quickly define what human trafficking is. As defined by the United Nations, human trafficking is the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring, or recept of persons by improper means that can include force, abduction, fraud, or coercion for an improper person that includes forced labor or sexual exploitation. All right, so that brings us to our guest speaker for today's episode. We are so fortunate to have Michael, the founder and CEO of Blue Dragon Children's Foundation here with us. Um, Blue Dragon Children's Foundation is an NGO based in Hanoi, Vietnam, and the organization has done so many amazing things, including save over 1,000 children from child trafficking. Now that we have Michael online, could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about Blue Dragon Children's Foundation? We'd love to hear about it. Sure. So I'm an Australian and I live in Vietnam. I've been here now since 2002. And I came here as an English teacher, but ended up starting Blue Dragon as a way to help street kids in Hanoi. And that then turned into an initiative to also rescue uh, children uh, who had been trafficked both within Vietnam and from Vietnam to China. So, so I'm now the co-CEO. We have two CEOs at Blue Dragon. And, um, and uh, I, I oversee a lot of the development of the organization. And we're now working both with street kids in Hanoi, where I live, and uh, rescuing victims of human trafficking. That's so amazing. Like that's work that you could truly give back to the community. And I we truly idolize that here. But we were reading a lot about Blue Dragon and are interested what was the inspiration about the name, like Blue Dragon? What does this mean? And what was the process of you guys like starting the foundation? Well, when we were beginning, uh, we were all volunteers and none of us had any experience in uh, in doing this kind of work. We, we just wanted to help the kids. It was me and I was teaching in a university. So some of my students were the, were the volunteers and, and became the co-founders. 
And and so when it came time to actually name the organization, uh, it was really hard to work out. And you know, how do you do this? How do you come up with a name? So finally, we we worked out. Well, what do we stand for? What are our values? And the idea of the dragon came about partly because Vietnam is in the shape of a dragon if you look at it horizontally instead of vertically. But also here in Southeast Asia, dragons are symbols of good luck and prosperity. So in the West, you have, you know, the dragon slayer mythology, like dragons are something to be feared. But here, dragons bring you goodness. And, and so we, we had the dragon idea. And, and then the blue part of it was thinking about the Australian blue sky and, and the ocean, which to me are, are representative of openness and, and freedom and peace. And, and so we brought them together. And then one of our boys, uh, who, who had actually been a street kid, um, drew, uh, drew our, our dragon uh, in, an, in an art class. And, and it was just perfect. We had it touched up by a volunteer graphic designer. And there we were. We, we had our name. We had our image. That's so interesting. I love that it's symbolic and it's truly personal because there is volunteers and everybody kind of involved with its creation. It's amazing. So um, obviously our art audience are going to learn a lot about Blue Dragon. Is there any resources that you can provide or um, any advice you can give regarding how they can learn more about the organization and what resources would you recommend that they should check out? Obviously head to the, to the website, bluedragon.org. But, you know, in our work, we meet so many kids that we, we have so many stories to tell. Um, so do get onto Facebook and Instagram and Twitter uh, and, and connect with us there. I also keep a blog, which I write uh, personally uh, every week. Uh, it's called lifeisalongstory.com. And, and each week, each Sunday night, I, I share a story about one of the kids, and I try to connect it to the bigger issues of trafficking and, and homelessness. Um, so among those, those different sites, that's, we have a mass of resources, both stories and factual reports. There's no shortage. Of, and, 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 you know, we've got a YouTube uh, site as well where we've got lots of videos. Uh, and I do encourage you, yeah, get on, get on those and, and have a good look through all of that content. Awesome. Thank you so much. I'm sure they will really appreciate it. You're welcome. That, that's, uh, like I say, we've got a lot of resources there. Um, you, during our emails, you mentioned that Blue Dragon is involved in the revision of Vietnam's laws and regulations concerning human trafficking. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Because we're so interested in the organization's involvement with that. Sure. Well, when we started our involvement in human trafficking, we, we weren't planning to become an anti-trafficking organization. Uh, I had always thought that we would be an organization focused solely on helping street children. And then one day I was, in, I was in another city in Vietnam. I was in Ho Chi Minh City, which is in the south. I live in Hanoi, which is in the north. But I was visiting Ho Chi Minh City and, and I met on the street a boy who clearly wasn't well. Something was wrong. Um, and what I found out later, by the way, he was 13 and, and he was basically a bit malnourished and exhausted. He had been trafficked to the city to sell flowers on the street. So he would walk up and down the tourist areas selling roses. And you know, he was doing this 
sometimes up to 18 hours a day. So he was absolutely exhausted. And, and I, I worked out that he'd been trafficked and thought, okay, I'll, I'll help him get out of this, which, which I did. And, and it was the first time that I had done anything like that. Uh, and he went back to his village. And then we went to visit him there to, to find out what happened. Why, why were you trafficked? Uh, and what we found out was that he, he had never been to school. So he was 13. He couldn't read or write. He was completely illiterate. And, and even he was on the street selling roses, but he, he actually couldn't read numbers either. So he knew the amounts of money by the colour of the, of the notes that people gave him. Um, and, and we realised also it wasn't only this one child. It was across the, all of these villages up and down the coast of central Vietnam. And, and so we thought, look, we can't, we can't turn our back on that. And, and even though we, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing, we couldn't find anybody else who, who was aware of this issue or, or knew what to do. So we just started helping by, by talking with the communities and, and, and we would share about the situation of children who were in Ho Chi Minh City. They thought their children were off learning a trade or studying something. And when they actually understood what had happened to their children, they were really distraught and wanted us to get their kids back. So we did. And, and we started, you know, doing these rescue operations where we would go and find children who'd been trafficked and, and we would bring them home with the permission of their parents. Um, and then later on, a couple of years after that, we also had the experience of one of our girls from the street children's program being trafficked to China. And we went to China and found her and brought her back. And that began our, our cross-border sex trafficking work. So it, was a, it really was an evolution, as you said, and it didn't start out with a plan or a vision, although we certainly have one now. That's absolutely incredible to hear about the evolution of your organisation. Um, Reem and I both read the blog post from last week, which is called A Trafficker's Story. And we were super interested because we don't often hear the story from the trafficker's perspective. So could you just share some factors that may cause someone to become a trafficker? And we all, obviously we know that they don't excuse the crimes that they've committed, but it's just so interesting to hear both sides of the story. Yeah, yeah. And that's why we, we did this study in, to try to understand who are these people. Uh, and, and I really want to emphasise that a trafficker in Australia or in the USA or in Germany may be very different, you know, to, to a trafficker in Vietnam or Thailand. And even across Vietnam, traffickers might have different motivations. So we need to be really, really careful that we don't think there's one kind of person who's a trafficker. But here in Vietnam, the typical trafficker is somebody who is an ethnic minority person, very, very poor has been denied an education. In fact, the vast majority haven't, haven't gotten anywhere near finishing high school. Many are illiterate, never had a break in life. And one day someone, so a trafficker higher up the chain, meets them and offers them, look, why don't you do this? And, and convinces them that, that the victim actually will benefit somehow. And so is duped into luring a girl away. And, and just as you say, Jenny, that doesn't excuse what they do. That, so all of that information doesn't 
doesn't make you say, oh, well, maybe, maybe we shouldn't really penalise them. But what it does tell us is that if traffickers are from such disadvantaged backgrounds, maybe we can actually help them before they become traffickers. And so that's an avenue that Blue Dragon is exploring just at the moment, where we think about not only helping girls and women who are victims of trafficking or vulnerable to trafficking, but thinking about who are the people vulnerable to being traffickers. So that's a really interesting question for us to wrestle with. Yeah, I think that's amazing because obviously in order to identify a resolution to an issue, you need to understand both sides of the story. We can't just understand one of them because there's two sides to every story, as we are told. So as you touched upon just a little bit, there are so many different ways that people can become traffickers and there's so many different ways people can become trafficked. So what are some common ways that you have seen and are there certain individuals or minority groups that are more vulnerable to trafficking than others? Here in Vietnam, the main trafficking, now there are lots of different types of trafficking, but the main trafficking is of girls and, and women being taken to China and sold, and mostly being sold into what we call a forced marriage. Now, they're not actually getting married. It's just a man taking possession of the woman and then forcing her to have his children. Uh, sometimes the women are, are sold to brothels instead of these, these marriages. But, but by far, that's the main problem with, with human trafficking here. The, the way the traffickers work we have to be really clear, it's not an abduction. It's not grabbing someone and shoving them in a car and racing away. The trafficker forms a relationship and they do that maybe by becoming like an online boyfriend and then eventually they meet offline or they might do it by offering a job and that could be a man or a woman. And again, often making friends online, sometimes offline and building up trust so, so they're, they're targeting people who have some vulnerability, maybe who are in remote areas. So maybe it's attractive to meet somebody online because maybe there are not many people to meet in the village or people who are desperate for a job. And so the traffickers, whatever their background is, they're looking for girls and women who have some vulnerability that makes them say, look, I, I haven't met this person or I don't know this person very well, but I'll take the risk. Um, so it could be someone whose children are sick. Some, some of the victims are already married and have children or might be single mums. They might be teenage girls at home, they've dropped out of school and the family's really poor and they wanna make some money. And, and so they take a risk that you or I wouldn't really have to take. We would be able to check it out or we would be able to find something safe. Now, most of these victims are from ethnic minority groups. Here in Vietnam, about 15% of the population, so that's about 15 million people, belong to these 54 or so ethnic groups, and they each have their own language and culture, but they are Vietnamese people. And they are overrepresented in the trafficking statistics. And the reason for that is that they're overrepresented in the poverty statistics. So we see a real link there. Um, the people who are poorest, who are least able to call for help, who are least likely to be literate and have a good community network, they're the ones who end up being the victims. 
So in a way, no surprises, but it really does help us understand how we might combat this, uh, this problem because we can have some understanding of why this happens in the first place. Definitely. Now we have both read your blog posts and they are really amazing. The stories that you tell is really inspiring and we've learned a lot just through them. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about the language that the language surrounding trafficking? Like what terminology should we use or not should not use and the nuisance of your sensationalism in the media? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, and it's something that I had to learn myself. But the way we speak about trafficking shapes to an extent, it shapes and reflects the way we think about trafficking and the way that we uh, shape other people's thinking. So uh, we're, I'm, I'm really careful about talking on one hand about victims versus survivors of trafficking. When somebody calls out for help to Blue Dragon, at that point, I'm comfortable to say they are a victim. They're in a position where they need help. Uh, but once they're out of that, you know, once, once they've returned home or, or are safe, I then prefer to call them a survivor uh, rather than labelling them forever as a victim. In doing that, it's, it's about using slightly more empowering language. Another, another issue is, is around the word rescue, and I've written about that recently on my blog. We rescue people. Um, you know, that's, that's a fact. People call for help and we send someone to go and find them. We normally do it by like setting up an escape and, and helping them to, to run off to freedom and then we, we accompany them back. That's a rescue. But sometimes, some people might feel that rescue is a condescending word because it gives us the power and takes power away from, from that person who's been trafficked. So, so I'm careful to use that in a, in a literal and accurate sense. It is a rescue in that someone calls for help and we go in and, and find them and, and work out how to get them out. But I know sometimes the word rescue might be used a bit more freely, like, you know, we, we rescued her by paying her school fees or we, we rescued her by providing counselling. And in that case, I think then the word rescue is an emotive word rather than a factual word. There's a lot, there's a lot to look at, and by country it varies as well. I know that in the US there is some discussion around you know, the phrase abolitionist. And I and on one hand, I want to say don't get too caught up in the right and the wrong of the words. On the other hand, I want to say it's it's interesting and worthwhile being aware of because words have power. That's so true. So many words carry implications and it's important just to keep that in consideration, especially if we're campaigning or educating mm. others. So on that track, we were just wondering, as a volunteer organisation with so many young people, what are some simple, actionable steps that young people can do in the combat to fighting child trafficking or human trafficking? I think the best advice that I can can ever give anybody is to act local while you're thinking global. So uh, part of that is taking a long-term view while acting now. Now, in reality, it's not your responsibility to stop human trafficking. It's your responsibility to do your part to not, not make it worse. Um, but we need governments taking action. We need police taking action. 
and, and organizations as well. But there are things that you can do. And I think the number one thing is be educated about it, which is exactly what you're doing now in this podcast series. There's a lot of nuance to learn and understand. And I, I love that you're even asking me about language. You know, that is educating yourself. Because as you grow and go into further study and eventually into work, you will be making the decisions that affect people across the globe in the future. So, so that education now, starting that now, is vital. There are other things that you can do that have a more immediate impact. And as teenagers, I have to say, you are extremely powerful. Companies desperately want you. They want you to spend money with them and they want you to be a lifelong loyal customer. That puts you in a very powerful position because who you decide to give your money to, they shape the world. So it's very easy to do a bit of research online and work out which companies are trying to get slavery or child labor out of their supply chain. And, you know, to be fair, it's not possible for any company to be 100% perfect. What, what counts is that they're genuinely trying. And if you, you can very easily do that research online. And, and if you find that, that there's a brand uh, that isn't doing its part, tell them that you're not going to buy from them because you have that power. So spend your money with the companies that are ethical producers. That's the most powerful thing that you can do. So I, th I think that, that those elements, that education and working out where your direct impact can be, that's the most useful thing for students across the globe to do. I really do recommend, though, that you get involved in some volunteering capacity with someone. Now, it can be hard, for example, to volunteer with Blue Dragon because we're in Vietnam. You can fundraise for us, and that really goes a long way. For example, in September, we have a marathon walk, and we're calling on people to, to sign up and, and do this walk. That's really valuable. But there might also be other initiatives closer to home where you can also get involved helping out in the evenings or on the weekend. And it doesn't even have to be directly related to human trafficking. But get involved in causes, in initiatives that are making our world better. And they don't always have to be structured and organised. Dropping a meal around to somebody's house when they're sick with COVID, that, that is an important and valuable thing to do. Don't feel that you need to only do things that are really big and will impact millions of people. Really do think local and immediate while you're taking that longer-term journey to, to do something bigger in, in your, over the course of your lives. That's really great to hear, especially I think a lot of teenagers trying to get involved in the international community but don't really know how to. And it's such an overwhelmingly large issue that's so difficult to actually feel like you're making an impact. If I can just comment on it, you've made such an important point there that it can seem overwhelming and you've got to avoid that. Look, when, when Blue Dragon started, I remember the day uh, that we had 30 kids 
that we were helping. And I knew it was 30 because we had a little file on each one where we would write down what we'd done to help them. And I remember thinking to myself, okay, 30, that, that's probably the limit. I reckon we won't be able to help more than 30. And now we help thousands every year. We've, we've rescued more than a thousand people from trafficking. We're conducting court cases and, and rescue operations every day. If I'd been overwhelmed at the start, we wouldn't be here now. If you can help one, then help one. It might build into something bigger, maybe. Great, that's, that's fine. But it doesn't have to, and it doesn't have to start big. I really want to emphasize that because, again, I want to point to the power that you have to, to do good and to shape this world. So I'll get off my little soapbox there, um, but I really wanted to say that. That's so, that's so empowering to hear. And it's so, it's so great that we can actually have an impact, even though a lot of people, I think, are a bit unsure of how to do that in the first place. But thank you so much, Michael. That was so great hearing from you and all your experience. Oh, pleasure. And, and any of your listeners, by the way, are, are very welcome to reach out again, you know, through social media or, or through the website. Happy to, happy to be contacted anytime. That's so great. Thank you so much. We'll also make sure to provide your resources in the notes for the podcast so anyone has the ability to reach out to you if there's any further questions or they are looking for someone to talk to or maybe are in the Vietnam area and would like to volunteer. So. Thank you so much for joining us today. We truly appreciate your time. And honestly, we feel empowered going out of this. So thank you for all the advice that you've given us. And we would like to quickly thank our audience as well for taking the time out of their day to listen to this podcast and become more educated about the issue. If you guys are looking for any more information or would like to visit the Blue Dragon website, you can check our social medias or you can check the podcast notes below. But Again, thank you so much, Michael, for joining us. That's the end of our podcast for today. Thank you.